Hello, and welcome to the Consumer VC Podcast, where we discuss the intersection of venture capital and consumer innovation. I'm your host, Mike Elb, and if you're enjoying the show, you can subscribe to my newsletter where you'll receive every new episode a week early. Head to theconsumervc.com and click subscribe. All content and episodes are for informational and entertainment purposes only and should not be used for investment advice. So this episode was a live interview that I did in Austin, Texas. Back in October, I interviewed Ty Haney, who's the founder of Outdoor Voices, Joggy, and Try Your Best, or TYB for short. Outdoor Voices makes active wear for doing things daily. And Ty talks about her tenure from founding the company and was incredibly forthcoming about how she exited the company as well and the reason that she ended up leaving. I really appreciate how open she was in this entire conversation. And then we shifted to talk about how she got into crypto and how she founded uh, Try Your Best or TYB, the crypto platform, and her goal of bringing brands and fans together. And also the first brand that she created off this platform, which is called Joggy. Joggy makes plant-based SETI energy supplements. There's a lot in this episode from these three stories of the company she's built to what's the future with performance marketing and growing online as a brand and much more. I do apologize because the audio quality in this episode, I'll be honest, is really bad. It was really hard to, for whatever reason, to actually record this episode live. So I want to give a special shout to my editor, John, for trying to make this episode of the best as possible, which was no easy task, trust me. So without further ado, here's Ty. Thanks everyone for coming. Um, Want to give it up for Mark Nathan, who really organized this entire thing. Mark, I mean, he's kind of like our awesome super connector. Everyone knows him. Um, and Ty, thanks so much for uh, uh, being here. Um, I so fun just like hitting you up and just you happen to be in town, so mm-hmm. that's just great. Flew in. Here um, we are. Yeah, here we are. Here we are. Exactly. Um, so we're definitely going to talk about your new company, CYB and Jam. But I think everyone here probably. You're most well-known for Outdoor Voices, so we want to get started with Outdoor Voices, that's all right. What was the insight that led you to founding Outdoor Voices? Uh, It was pretty simple. It was all about inspiring people to move. And so I grew up in a town called Boulder, Colorado. Super outdoorsy, mountains to climb, hiking every day. Every day we'd bike to school. That was just the kind of way or ritual of daily life. Um, And for me... Not only was that something physically that I needed to get energy out, et cetera, and feel my best, but from a mental perspective, it was super important to find a way to move. And so that really was the inspiration for Outdoor Voices. And after graduating from high school in Boulder, I went to New York City to art school and found myself not moving whatsoever. And so it dawned on me, I think I actually played on the intramural basketball team for like two days because all the security guards who were like six foot three were also playing and so I'd land right in their armpits and I was like sweaty mess, oh this is horrible. But I had kind of in my junior and senior year realized from a mental perspective that I wasn't moving as much and that really made me a different person and, and so I, I kind of tapped back into as a kid growing up, being active, etc. and was like, how cool would it be to build a brand, not necessarily around being the fastest or crossing the finish line first, but all around inspiring people to be active. And that, that kind of simple mission, we then called it doing things, really took off. And I think not only is that a mission that's good for you and has the potential to maximize happiness for people, we also were very inclusive in who could see themselves 
as an active person. So it wasn't about a certain body type or big muscles, again, how fast you cross the finish line, but all about connecting the dots on a daily basis to move your body. Also changing the chemistry. And so from a business perspective, all of the activewear companies, Nike, Under Armour, et cetera, I had loved growing up being an athlete. They were all founded by men. And so changing the chemistry, not only through moving our bodies, but also being a female-founded uh, activewear brand that looked and felt different was super important to me. What were some of the things, we talk a lot, a lot about the podcast, when you first start a company, you kind of have to do things that actually don't scale. What were some of the things in the early days that you actually had to do that just like weren't scalable, but like you need to do them? Yeah, of course. Um, well, these are leggings, so it's not rocket science by any means, but I moved to LA for a short period of time and, and we uh, manufactured everything out of El Monte, which is not a too cute spot just south of LA. Um, and so I rented a couch literally on Airbnb, uh, a couch in Venice, had this old beat up car and would drive back and forth every day because we had this massive order from J. Crew. I think it was our first large order, 600K or something, um, of leggings. And so I was essentially the uh, one checking to make sure every legging on the line worked or, you know, fits back, et cetera. Um, so that, that would be one thing that wasn't scalable tied to producing in LA, which, at, you know, from a margin perspective over time, we had to move it overseas. It's awesome. Now, I know, I mean, you're still very young, but you started uh, Outdoor Voices when you were very young. I think you were like 23, right? Mm -hmm. um, and you also had a very like experienced board. You surrounded yourself with very kind of experienced people in retail. What was kind of awful and also awesome about that and kind of what was maybe obvious and maybe not so obvious to you when it came to like where, where retail was going? Well, what was awesome was we, this being kind of my first go and then the team's first go, we had this true belief that we could build the next Nike. And so not having had prior experiences, it was like, this is our vision, our mission, we're going after it, we're going to be as big as Nike. And so the energy, the enthusiasm, the passion was palpable. And, and I think that was super core to us really creating a community around the brand that became our moat. Um, I now understand from personal experience why a lot of people say I don't invest in an entrepreneur until their second time around. <laughs> because uh, starting at, at 23, I certainly had blind spots. And that was the most awful part. Got it. No, that's, that, that's helpful. Looking back, like, how do you also think, because you start off, you know, as, as a digital brand, how do you think about the relationship between, you know, D to C and also brick and mortar retail? So we grew up in this direct to consumer kind of wave. Yeah. And I very much believe direct to consumer was a lie. It was not all direct whatsoever. 30, 40, 30 to 40% of the dollars that we had raised would go to Facebook or Instagram, et cetera. So we can talk about that later. Um, but from day one, what had really worked for us from a growth perspective was something I called Activate Offline, Amplify Through Digital and Social. And so our first store here in Clarksville is a great example of that. It's a tiny little footprint in a residential neighborhood, not your traditional kind of retail location. That's where we opened up and would start to program on a local level different events, dog jogs, hikers clubs, biking, etc., on a frequent basis. And so. Uh, what we really valued was the in-real-life connection, the in-real-life movement and participation in, in uh, the mission of the brand. And then that energy would essentially unlock the digital channels. So that became a really interesting, repeatable playbook. Kind of the third piece to that was we always looked at markets that had a university. And so UT, this really became like a perfect pilot for us that then the plan was to repeat kind of over and over. 
a small shop in a residential neighborhood, field marketing where there's con consistent kind of events going on, and then a university. And so as we started rolling out kind of this, what I called 360 community model, we would be able to unlock total markets, um, let's say Nashville, for instance, you'd then see other spots or cities outside of Nashville turn on from an awareness perspective. So what I saw and the team saw really working was exactly opposite to what was being pitched to us. Go spend all of your dollars on paid performance channels. It's working for everybody else, like it's gotta work for you. That was not an efficient way to, to grow by any means. And so really core to our early success was leaning into this offline amplify through digital and social. And that led you as well to rethink and reimagine what it makes sense to actually grow it online. And as well as um, kind of me, me having this really kind of community-led brand, right? Talk to me a little bit about how and why you left um, Outdoor Voices and as well as um, starting your, your next couple of ventures. I think you asked something about the board earlier on. Yeah. And I think I certainly was a pretty trusting founder and, and was open to kind of suggestions, particularly, particularly from our VCs, which was I, I trusted them as partners. They were on my board. A guy named Mickey Drexler on, and he had this crazy, impressive kind of retail legacy. And I was totally into it and open, open to it. However, when he came in, it became very apparent that there, were, there was a bifurcated kind of view on the strategy for the company. So I very much felt this kind of go local uh, community effort was the way to grow. Um, he felt very strongly about kind of big box, more traditional retail being kind of on Fifth Avenue, in malls, etc. I was, I think, 25 or 26 and wasn't politically savvy enough to essentially convince the board that my way was correct, mm. or at least correct for OV and, and me being kind of at the helm of, of the company. So uh, dynamics became very challenging. And I ended up leaving, I can't remember the year, what was it? 2020 maybe? No, 2019. I don't know. It doesn't matter. Uh, some crazy press story that had been um, referencing kind of Mickey came out and I was pissed because I had been warning the board that there was, you know, there were challenges between he and I. And so ultimately I read this press story that hadn't been fact-checked and I, I went to Google and said, how do you resign? I've never resigned in my life and so this is very embarrassing. But the next day, that morning, I write, dear whoever, the board, I hereby tender my resignation, doing things, like the more, most formal resignation ever, um, but I saved it because it's kind of cute. And I was, I was pissed, but, but ultimately, well, I'll pause there. You can ask me whatever. No, 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 I appreciate it. So in terms of like what your vision was versus Mickey, just so I understand it, it seemed like you wanted to maybe own your distribution channels. You wanted to sell your own products where Mickey wanted to like to actually create like an incredible wholesale business. Is that roughly kind of correct? I think we just had different views on the appropriate strategy for an, an, apparel, an apparel brand at the time. And I think another problem kind of around this whole thing was that it was really easy to raise money. And so we had raised so much money and then with that came the pressure to grow at breakneck speed. And not only did that then mean like we're we're pushing go on like three strategies at once which is not an efficient way to grow i've diluted myself so i'm continuing to lose control i found that that companies that were expected to grow that quickly made themselves trends and so you know people would see them kind of all through their instagram feeds plastered on billboards everywhere and that's a dangerous place also to play where it's like I see this brand for five years blitzing me everywhere like I'm sick of it. So there's a few things related to 
raising so much money that ultimately became challenging, which seems odd. So like raising a lot of money and then kind of pumping all this money into like customer acquisition, customer acquisition and like marketing and like spending. And, and it just, I, I think the pressure and kind of um, the pressure to grow at breakneck speed meant you're, you're not being super focused on where you're putting your resources. And, and so obviously that doesn't look good at the end of the day. What would you advise like, you know, first time early entrepreneurs that, maybe are speaking with, you know, someone who has, you know, incredible track record, you know, incredible amount of experience, maybe come on into your company. Like what, what kind of ways would you kind of like diligence that person or just like evaluate if they actually might be a good fit? I think get to know, I like, I like now trying before you buy. So getting to know them um, (laughs) ahead of essentially bringing them on, it sounds obvious, but oftentimes you're just like, I'll take any help when you're the operator. Um, So try in before you buy. And then, and then I think one thing I'd recommend for anyone starting in a business is master the fundamentals before you try and break them. And I remember kind of us all sitting around the table at some point and we're in an inventory business and unfortunately there's sizes. So there's a lot of complexity again. Um, but I remember this question being asked from Mickey, how high is high? Like we're in growth mode, how high is high? How many pink flamingo leggings do we think we can, uh, can sell? And so we're all rambunctious and excited and can see us becoming the next Nike and we're like, okay, how high is high? We're gonna like triple our, what we think we can sell here. And then we didn't and we were sitting literally on 10,000 pink flamingo leggings, which two things there. One, cash is king um, and that's something like, when I say it now, it's so obvious, but when you're caught up in it, like always optimizing for cash is, is something that I would highly recommend. So talk to me a little bit about transitioning out of Outdoor Voices and as well as how you developed your next two ventures. Yeah, so I, I feel like it's, well, it was my first baby and so it was hard to leave. So two months later, the board asked me to come back and I did. And then it was very clear that... Why did I, the board ask you to come back? Just, just I think it's, it's a tragedy in many of these cases because investors come in, see that the founder has vision, there's traction, there's something magical here and awesome and and opportunity, but the expectation again around growth just isn't realistic, particularly for physical product companies like ours. Um, And so we continued to raise money, I diluted myself, um, and ultimately I had lost control. But I'm the type of person who's like, I certainly will we'll solve this. You know, I'm going to work as hard as I possibly can again and again to solve this. And when it's your company that you started from day one, it's super hard to leave. But it, yeah, again, it became apparent that the control had changed, decision making had changed, and I was in like this weird box. And I'm like, no. At the end of the day, also, I learned that being the CEO, as, as the CEO, no matter the dynamic, like you're fucking accountable fully accountable and that feels good to say uh like whatever people make mistakes now i'm a second time entrepreneur uh i'd invest in me so um (laughs) (laughs) um, uh anyway yeah no i i appreciate that so i mean with all this being said how did you get into blockchain and how did you and like tell me a little bit of the story of uh tyb and and how like that kind of came about and kind of like the aha moment there yeah, um, I like to go after things that are really hard. I'm now in crypto yeah, and CBD. I'm like, There's a lot of baggage around these spaces. <laughs> um, I left Dr. Voices and our head of finance, who's a close friend and partner of mine, 
had been investing in Avalanche. And so he was trying to get kind of the OP situation under control, but also like over here, just experimenting and learning as much as he could about blockchain. He was really kind of my shepherd into the space. And what I became really fascinated like by was these NFT projects, I think it was CryptoKitties or something, where people who had stake in the project and, and the project's success would then come together and like explode kind of the success of, of this project. And I was like, holy shit, like that applied to consumer is a beautiful future. And so if I were to like simplify why I'm attracted to Web3, it's this. I love the idea that users of a product or loyalists of a brand have stake or aligned incentive in the success of that brand and, and something to show for their continued loyalty, contribution, and participation. So how did you get started with this idea? And what did you also think about what type of brand would make sense in terms of like the actual stage of the brand? I, for- so I, I didn't know I was leaving OV to start 2IV. Okay. I, I was going to work with Zach to essentially create an umbrella of brands that you know, my personal kind of passion and through line continues to be movement. And so uh, while I was still at OV, I was experimenting with taking different amounts of CBD uh, and THC before runs and found that at the right kind of dosage, you could conjure up the feeling of a runner's high. Did any of you guys run track or cross country? That kind of elusive euphoric feeling that generally takes many, you know, miles of aerobic exercise to feel like I'm the energizer bunny, I could go forever. Uh, I found that with the right kind of CBD dosage and formulation, you could unlock that. And so it felt really interesting to me in that if we could get this to more people, we could help them move again on a more frequent basis and and feel good and joyful about it. So Joggy was the first brand, and we're off to the races with that. As we started thinking about going to market, TYB kind of came into frame. And so realized that we could leverage crypto or the blockchain to create a better business model. You know, we had been a brand that in my past was structurally reliant on ad platforms, like I had briefly described. This was a really unique opportunity to to use tech to directly connect Joggy and our first customers with no middleman. And that's really what the interesting opportunity is here is the future of brand building, I would say is two things. It's about co-creation, uh, so empowering your most trusted fans and customers to truly influence, shape, and have a voice in how your brand evolves uh, and comes to life over time, and then incentivization. And so rather than, I'm part of the community, I like this brand on Instagram, or I like comment. No, you're coming into this community and now rewarded for every action that you take. And that's, we essentially use the the blockchain as a coordinating mechanism for value creating uh, initiatives between brands and fans. So co-creation, when you're kind of creating as well with your you know, fans or, or what hopefully will be you know, customers, sounds very like utopian, you know, like everyone's kind of coming together and, and creating, but it's also maybe like too many cooks in the kitchen. And of course, like the other day, it's your brand. How do you actually think about, like if you can give an example of like what co-creation actually means? Yeah, of course. Um, I'm not saying in most cases that it's like, tell us what to go do from scratch. Like there still needs to be a vision and a perspective. And then if you do this right and brands that do this right will essentially supercharge affinity around the brand. But one thing, like I'll, I'll tie it back to kind of what we did at OV, but in a very kind of scrappy manner, we would bring a hundred of our kind of like most trusted customers upstream in the product development process 
to help us pick color, colorways, prints, do product testing around the exercise dress. And the exercise dress became kind of this super high converting and like crazy loved style because people felt like active participants and owners in the creation of it, which, you know, is a small kind of like way to give and a lot, it, 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 it like netted a massive kind of uh, love and, and impact. So there's different ways, but, but it's also helpful, um, let's say for brands to uh, bring insights or preferences upstream to help with demand planning. So showing a line sheet, for instance, to a customer base, pick your three favorite colors, like that's going to make planning more efficient. There's kind of very interesting ways to, to allow brands to co-create. So on like the preference side, maybe what your community community maybe like 10% of the picture per se, or like a small like piece of the actual product itself. I, I think like we're just hitting go and, and our toolkit allows this for brands that are interested in it. Um, but I don't know, there's going to be like crazy different examples. Yeah. For instance, we're working with a large enterprise brand that's running a year-long initiative where they're bringing 10,000 of, you know, this specific type of athlete into a channel to truly like go deep in kind of the, the creation of this product, which is interesting because then they tap that group of 10,000 invested community members to help distribute, again, driving word of mouth, augmenting something that the best kind of acquisition tool is, is that word of mouth. So I think it's going to be an effective tool. And what about the incentive system? Like how do you, when you're collaborating with brands, even with you know, Joggy, how do you think about what the right incentive system is to mm -hmm. actually, um, to, that, that actually, you know, um, rewards fans and also like there's actually like great alignment? Right now the loop is very simple and, and that's, the reason for that is like regulatory wise, we're still in a gray area in terms of what smart contracts can look and feel like in terms of how much you incentivize fans for participating in something. Like for me, like what becomes really interesting over time is when, for instance, a brand could create a smart contract that lives in a collectible that gives fans royalties or ownership in a specific style, one that they helped co-create. And so more, more meaningful incentive and upside potential uh, based on their participation. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Right now, what, what we're seeing is most brands are wanting to use this as like a new way of doing loyalty. And so you can capture actions beyond transaction. Every action I post to social, I submit a review, I participate in this brand challenge. All of this is super easily captured and measurable on the blockchain. And brands can decide to uh, essentially reward with brand coins that can be redeemed for things. And that could be a discount, access to product, etc. So we're very much in this phase one uh, that is a new, more fun, kind of gamified way of doing loyalty, but connected to concepts that people are familiar with. What about NFTs? I imagine that's probably maybe part or a big part of your strategy. NFTs were you know, very, very popular, a lot of hype yeah. in 2021, and then now... You know, it seems like a lot of brands are launching their own NFTs, and, and, and are consumers, do you think, a little bit fatigued of, uh, of NFTs? Like, what do you what do you think overall? Like, I think the crypto thoughts? space, like, looks and feels one way. It's very bro culture. It's like, and that's what excites me. Like, I'm uh, the opportunity kind of in to leverage this tech in interesting ways for people that aren't interested in it today is like very exciting. We're particularly focused on getting more young uh, Gen Z and millennial women into the space via the brands that they love, but. I like to compare, or I also don't call it an NFT, we like politely rebranded it to collectible uh, and other people have as well, but I think it has less baggage. Um, I would say like if you think of 
like tying back down to our voices, our blue doing things hat, I'm sure you continue, I would hope you continue to see them here, I don't live here anymore. But the blue doing things hat in, in the early days was something that you could only get by participating in one of our activities. And then you'd be on the trail, see it, you'd hide five, we're part of the same community. Um, and, and it really represented kind of this belonging, right? And so that as a physical item now goes digital, lives in a wallet, and represent not only represents your belonging to a community, but has perks, utility, access, etc. When do you think for, even for, you know, uh, try your best and, you know, uh, uh, you actually helping a brand um, launch this kind of rewards platform yeah. um, or just do it on their own, what kind of stage do you think a brand needs to be? Because I can imagine you, you, you can't just kind of start from scratch and then, you know, because you don't really have a community or you don't really have much to do. Like, what do you kind of think it makes sense to the actual starting side? So with Joggy, we started from scratch, and okay. this was a grand experiment. It wow. went well. We sold, the way that we launched Joggy was we sold 500 Joggy Doggies, these brown animated collectibles for $250 each. It came with a suite, of, like a list of perks. And so that was our first 500 um, community members, and from there we've grown it. What we're focused on, at least from our perspective now, is more the enterprise. Because if we can get a large volume of audience, customers, participants into the network, this is going to be a very valuable place for mid-size and small brands as they discover you know, new communities they want to be a part of. So that, that's the sequencing that, that we're focused on, is like bring a lot of people into this space, and then it becomes a really attractive place to start from scratch. And, and I do think 10 years from now, um, the next great Nikes are going to be fully community founded, led and owned. And like that means full decentralization. And that's like really into this world where everyone has a piece of the, you know, the pie. And, and that becomes very cool. But we're progressively going to get there. We don't have the tools to manage that kind of from a treasury or fiduciary standpoint right now. Over the next, you know, five, 10 years, I know like, you know, the past few years, like they say that for VCs that invest in consumer brands, like 40% just goes straight to Facebook. Mm-hmm. How do you think that's going to change in terms of what brands are going to be spending on their marketing in the next like five, 10 years, and as well as how this kind of percentage of brands focusing on this, this kind of aspect of being community-led versus, you know, other marketing it goes to their It goes to their most loyal customers okay. directly. So you cut out the middleman. That's going to be the efficient way to grow. And then kind of tied to that, this concept of interoperability becomes really interesting. So let's say as we have 30 synergistic, not competitive brands using TYB, right now kind of the discovery point is through the user's wallet. So you can go to my wallet, it's public, see what collectibles I have or communities I'm part of, click in, now decide to join that community or not. What's interesting is for brands that want to participate, um, brand coins can become interoperable. So let's use Away, the luggage company for example, and Parade, the underwear company. If I'm part of the Away community, I earn coins. For Parade and Away are working kind of together in this community of community-led brands. Those coins could be interoperable, which really allows brands to share audience, cross-pollinate, and grow in a much more efficient manner than everybody paying for the same people at a higher and higher price uh, across a Facebook or Instagram. Makes sense. What other brands are you currently working with? A few, a few coming live this month. I can a company called June Shine. Oh yeah, is cool. is pretty cool. A hard kombucha company out of San Diego. They're launching um, a collectible membership around their tasting rooms, and and so really the goal uh, here is to drive frequency at the tasting room. So the collectible evolves at every time that you visit, unlocking further utility. It becomes almost like a game that you're playing with your favorite 
brand and, and friends that also love that brand. How do you also think about the kind of customer consumer education around crypto blockchain? It's huge. Yeah. Um, and like, what are, what have you seen brands, um, maybe Joggy or, you know, another brand that you maybe admire that has done a really good job in terms of actually kind of showing people that it's actually really easy to kind of be part of this community and, and, and there really isn't that much friction. There, there's not, there aren't great examples out there. That's okay. really what we're focused on. So with TYB, we're focused on bringing the 99% of people who don't have crypto experience, a rainbow wallet, MetaMask, et cetera, into the world of Web3 without having to know it. Like you're coming in through a cute collectible that gives me these perks, hell yeah. And then you'll start to benefit from it, understanding that I might potentially, for being like the first thousand of the Glossier community, I might be able to sell that for X amount of dollars later on, right? And so I think where we are uniquely differentiated and able to win, and I don't know that there's going to be a necessary winner, there's going to be many winners in terms of what we do in this space, is we can communicate in simple terms to the community member why they want to be here. Um, and so I think from an adoption standpoint, like that's the name of the game, and you'll start to see, if you follow TYB, you all should now after this, um, you'll start to see us turn on kind of our comms uh, strategy, which is just around education, or maybe I call it infotainment, because um, it's more than, it's not boring. And through case studies, so as June Chen goes live, we're working with Loops and Camila uh, Mendez, we're working with this really cool Nike instructor called Joe Holder, um, and a number of bigger brands kind of in Q1 of 2023, but, but I'm a big uh, believer in showing versus telling, and so these case studies will start to bring to light like how you can participate and, and what it means. I know like TYB kind of came out of you kind of rethinking how maybe go-to-market jogging should go, right? Mm -hmm. um, are you thinking about, in terms of like long-term vision for TYB, are you going to try to like incubate other brands too that can then leverage TYB? Or are you, or is it going to be kind of just working with brands as you're doing um, other brands as well? Yeah, that's a great question. Like the ultimate vision is yes, this becomes a network of skilled brand builders, for lack of a better term, where they get inspired, find one another, and can truly found brands out of this network. There's three simple phases, and this might be too much for this, but new loyalty is the phase that we're in right now, introducing coins, collectibles, and, and kind of the unlock of those. The next phase will be value share, which is introducing new smart contracts that further incentivize community members, like I described, revenue-based rewards, loyalties, etc. Uh, and the third phase is what I call true community ownership. And that's essentially where it's a community of community-led uh, companies working in this interoperable, interoperable way where there's the toolkit right in front of you to essentially start a brand from scratch. And what's exciting is going back to where Zach and I started with this kind of TYB umbrella of brands, we have three other brands kind of in a box ready to go, but I, I was like, shit, I don't want to go like manage another brand with inventory. We're going to wait until kind of this matures and then essentially for those that would be interested in these types of brands, hand over this brand in a box and they can take it and run with it. Cool. That's awesome. Obviously, you're a second time founder. Um, what were Thank what God. were some of your learnings from like the outdoor, uh, outdoor Voices experience, whether it's managing teams, maybe leadership, or yeah. just overall like go to market, release a new product, like what were kind of some of the learnings that, you kind of, that you're kind of taking from Outdoor Voices and, and applying to these two ventures? This one makes me laugh, but it's also sad. Um, have an exit plan. And that's, I take that very seriously because as a first time founder, especially in, you know, in my case where it's like all about the mission and really I was very connected to it. The team was very connected to it. You lose sight of, oh, 
we should have a plan or potential to exit, let's say, three to five years from now. And so I've become very focused on that. And, and not that in every case that's the goal, but setting yourself up and having kind of alignment with, you know, your investor side, et cetera, that we're really optimizing to be able to have an exit three to five years from now. That was something that certainly wasn't on my mind, and I wish someone had told me that. I think secondly, um, this was interesting because it's maybe I have uh, like a little bit of a wishy-washy perspective on it, but a lot of what I was told was like, you have to get the right people in here. Hiring is like so critical. And so that meant like these crazy expensive searches and like, you know, way too many people that were just like almost right, but not totally right. And I really think of hiring as, as dating and ultimately like your partner that you pick. They're not going to be everything for you. You need like a very sharp point. And so what I found was I had not spent enough time Actually, I had spent enough time, but I hadn't been quick enough to get my leadership team around me to essentially compliment what I was not great at. And I, Gary Keller, who is Austin-based, um, is an investor, and I remember him saying to me, like, Ty, the only thing you need to focus on is your five to seven people around you. And, and so I just want to call out, like, I spent way too much time trying to find the perfect person in each case, thinking, like, it all, it's all about the team, which it is, but there's really, really capable fantastic people that just need to have a you know spike in one area and then find five to seven of them that's awesome no that's great it's really really helpful um and i yeah i mean i i, I really do love those learnings um what is one book that's inspired you personally and one book that's inspired you professionally do you think? um i'm into the alchemist personally these aren't books but these are must reads from a brand building perspective uh this author toby shoren is fantastic um the first is called squad goals Second is Headless Brands, and the third is something lifestyle. You'll find it in there as well. But it's, it's some, these, these kind of um, works are phenomenal. They're not a book, but go read them. Awesome. Thank you so much. Um, besides The Alchemist, I don't think we've had anyone on the show that actually brought those other books. So excited to add, to add to our website. It's going to be great. Um, I think we have time for a couple questions if anyone has a question for Ty. It's fascinating. That really interesting go-to-market strategy and how they work. When you think about this and then like things like the metaverse and large corporate 50 companies like Coke and Nike going into the metaverse and setting up, how does this work with that, especially, you know, both in people building within both mm -hmm. or, you know, is yeah. it the emerging sits in this and we're going to have, you know, yeah. Coke, Nike, Pepsi living there? How does yeah. that Again, kind of tied to just what instinctually I know helps build community, the offline piece is super important. So really the toolkit acts as a coordinating mechanism for whatever value, valuable actions the brand deems valuable. Um, and, and we have an emphasis on things like events and rewarding people for getting to events, hosting events, like real world interaction. And so I get the metaverse, but I am a strong believer in powering online communities that also interact offline. And so this, our tech supports that. Um, and, and we're like, we're talking with some of those large companies that like, yes, they're going to make a lot of dollars just from a high margin um, product in, in the metaverse. But also like these big companies need to learn to feel small and local and relevant and, and in real life. And so... Again, I think the best companies are going to use this tech to do both. 
I also think, from, like, we can't underestimate with cookies leaving how how meaningfully a wallet is going to shape the future. It becomes kind of the user's single ID or passport to any of the interactions and actions they're taking. And so that's going to be mind-blowing. Like, this this wallet, while it is digital, is going to represent everything that I've done as, as a user, and that's, like, incredibly important to all of the brands that you just described. I think just piggyback piggybacking off that, I think about wallets, um, and we talked about this a little bit on the podcast too, you know, kind of ownership, like owning, owning an audience per se, it's, it's you know, email and SMS. Do you think that wallet's going to kind of replace that? Uh, wallet gives you a single view of all of that. Okay. Right? So um, a brand can say, I essentially want to incentivize like a wallet or a collectible holder for emails they open, reviews they submit, like all of the different parts of the tech stack can be plugged in mm -hmm. to be included in the measurability of community. And that's probably the most important piece of the TYB toolkit is it gives brands a real-time view of what their community efforts have netted and then a much more nuanced, holistic view on all the actions their community members have taken. Whereas today it's like, okay, I can see you know in little silos what they've done. Awesome. Well, Ty, thank you so much for, mm -hmm. uh, for doing this. We really, of course. We really appreciate it. Thanks, Thanks for having time. me. And there you have it. It was such a pleasure chatting with Ty. I really hope you enjoyed hearing her story and how she built these three companies. I'm very, very grateful to do this one live. And it was, it was a really great meeting her on the day. Thanks, everyone, for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcasts. You're also welcome to follow me, your host, Mike, on Twitter, at Mike Gelb, and also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. Thanks for listening, everyone.